open your Bibles to Romans 3.21. We're going to talk about the gospel today. today. That's our plan. So you can read along with me. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His graces again through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. This is maybe the, the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. People have called it that. Millions of words have been written on it. It's an amazing section of scripture that a lot of people have heard of, and people have gone with their essays, and done tons of sermons, and a lot of time has been spent in these six verses. And the overall like, main point of this paragraph, I believe, is this. Good works don't save us. God's work saves us. Good works don't save us. God's work saves us. Everything else I say falls under that name. Now people have talked a lot about why Romans was written and what the purpose of Romans is. It's super, super important that we understand why Romans exist. There's different views. Some people think that it was written primarily to deal with tension in the Roman church. We're going to come back to that, but I think it's a very pragmatic reason why Romans exists. It's a support letter. Who's ever received a support letter? Anybody? I'm going to describe what they are in the show notes. When you get a letter of someone who's going on a mission trip and they write you to ask if you would maybe give them some money so that they can go or pray for them. Who knows what I'm talking about? Who's received a support letter? Who's immediately thrown away and agreed to pray? Be generous. We have a number of partners in our church that do missions. We're excited to partner with them in various places in the world. Paul is doing something similar. He's going to go to Spain, where he wants to go. And he wants Rome, which is the center of the world, to be the staging ground for this mission trip. He's going to go to the edge of the world, and he wants Rome, which is the center of civilization, to stage his trip there, to support him financially and emotionally, and with a space to stay, and in terms of prayer. The problem is... Unlike other places that Paul visits or that Paul is writing to, Paul has never been to Rome to visit this church. He's never met many of the people there. He's not spent time living amongst them. Paul lived in Ephesus for a while. Paul lived in Corinth for a while. So when he writes to these places, he's like, you remember me. You remember the ministry that God did with us when I was there. You remember that I'm faithful. You remember that I believe the same things as you, that we share for the same gospel, that we share the same Lord. But when he writes to the Roman church, he can't do this because he's never been there. So what does he do? He, he flexes his theological muscles. He shows them the gospel that he intends to bring to Spain. He talks to them about what it is he believes has happened in his life and what he wants to happen in the hearts of those who hear the gospel. That's what he talks about. He describes to them the gospel. So what happens is, in this support letter, we end up with one of those precise, marvelous examples of a gospel summary that exists in the entire New Testament. We get to see the gospel kind of pared down to six verses. It's not everything the gospel is, but it is the heart of the gospel. 
That's what we get to hear about when we read these six verses or when we hear them read. There's probably four groups of people here today. The first group is those who have heard the gospel, who've received the gospel, who've been transformed by the gospel. And for you, this is a reminder of the secure hope that you have. Rest in the truth of the gospel. Be reminded of it. Second group are those who think they know what the gospel is, who've been going to church for a while, but don't, don't know what the gospel is. For you, this is a helpful correction. There are some of those people here today. Third group are those who have heard the gospel and rejected it. To this group, I want to beseech you one more time, hear the hope that you may possess in the name of Jesus. The fourth group never has heard the gospel. Maybe has passing acquaintance with religiosity and Christianity, has heard about the gospel, but has never actually heard what it is. To you, gospel is a genre of music. That's the extent to which you know about the gospel. If that's you, listen to the hope we possess, the one that you can as well. So Paul writes to this church, a church that's divided, and it's important to know why it's divided. It's in Rome, it's the center of the world, and many years before Paul writes this letter, the church is made up primarily of Jewish Christians. Those who have the Old Testament as their Bible, who have grown up knowing about the Old Testament. Those who can trace their ancestry back to those who live in Israel. Ethnically Jewish. There's some Gentiles in the church as well, but they're the smaller group. And then the emperor of Rome, Claudius, has all of the Jews expelled from the city. And that includes Christian Jews. So they all leave, and all the remains of the church in Rome are Gentile Christians. Those who didn't grow up in the Old Testament, even if they know it. Those who know where Israel is but aren't from there. Those made up of various places all over the world with varying ethnicities. And they move into leadership, and the church grows, and it takes on a different flavor, believing the same gospel, but a different flavor, a different set of leaders, a different character, as all churches have been. And then the edict that expelled the Jews from Rome is overturned, and they come back to a church that's now governed by people who were formerly the weaker group. You can imagine these Jews are excited to come back and find out there's no leadership positions available for them currently. So there's some tension. And Paul is addressing this tension. He's going to deal with this tension. But the way he's going to deal with this tension is explain to them what it is their eyes should be fixed on. The cross. It is at the cross that all of human history turns. It is at the cross that every human heart has an opportunity to turn. So he describes to them three things that happen at the cross. The first is this. Around the cross, around the cross, all the ground is level. And it's level for all human beings. We can begin verse 321. He says this. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe that there is no distinction for all the sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's a pastor who lived in the UK in the 20th century named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said, there are no more beautiful words in the Bible than these two. But now, he's saying there was a time when you knew what righteousness looked like because you had the law, but it could not cause righteousness in you. He says, there was a time salvifically where things looked different because you knew who God was, you knew what he demanded, but you were unable to attain that standard of righteousness. And what he does is he begins to talk about sin. Now, a couple points that are helpful to remember here. One is, Paul doesn't know most of these people. He's a pretty bold guy. 
The second is, the letter that he sent to the Romans would have been read out loud to the entire congregation because there were many people who could not read. So he writes a letter, by the way, to raise money. He's going to talk about sin. That's how he's going to raise money. Writes a letter, folds it up, gives it to the messenger who runs into the church in Rome. It gets read aloud. And remember, there's two groups. There are the Gentile Christians and there are the Jewish Christians. And he begins by talking to the Gentile Christians about sin. And we can read this in 129. He's talking about them. He's talking about their sin. He says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul lights them up. He goes nuts. This is how he opens his letter. Now, there's not, listen, there's not a joy more refined or, or just perfect than when you are in a fight with your brother and then your mom walks in the room and takes your side. There is nothing to fear than that. I'm just saying generally. I'm not talking about specifically like me and my brother, but like, oh man. It feels good, right? feels good. You're fighting. Boom. You have an advocate. You have an advocate. You're like, let's talk about more of the stuff that he did wrong. Let's do that. Let's do it. Yes! Right? That's what's happening. The Gentile Christians are hearing their sins and they're kind of like shrinking in their seats. It's getting awkward. The Jewish Christians are beginning to puff out. They're like, that's correct. That's correct, Paul. They're sinners. Remind them of who they are. And then, um, and then Paul, with the tone of voice that only a parent could have, is like, you guys. And like the wind is knocked out of me, right? My mom turns to me, she's like, now let's talk about you. I'm like, no, no, we're having a constructive conversation about my brother's sin. I want to remain in that world where we talk about the things he did wrong. Paul turns to the Jewish Christians, and he begins in 2-1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and repentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. And God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's raising money, remember that. <laughs> He's getting intense, right? Everyone in the room is completely deflated. He's talking about everyone's sin, but he's not done yet. Then he begins to quote from the Old Testament. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asses is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul goes full on street preacher. You guys know what I'm talking about. He goes full on Ed Lee, right? Hmm. Talks about sin. And this all leads up to one of the most famous passages in the Bible. The famous verses in the Bible. Many of you have it memorized. 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's built his way there. He's saying this, all of us, everyone that I'm talking to, everyone that he was talking to, all made in the image of God, meant for his glory, even though you looked like God, you didn't act like God, and you never attained the glory you were meant for. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He begins in a counterintuitive place. The gospel begins in a place that human hearts don't want to believe. Sin, bad news, imminent death, the judgment of God. Today, we hear that like, uh, I don't know. See, we're going to overboard. Because we do weird things with sin. We do really weird things with sin. Here's an example. Um, my son, who's two, when he um, soils his diaper, this is going to get gross. Just stay with me. <laughs> when he soils his diaper, he will immediately blame it on whoever's closest to him. <laughs> right? Hey, uh, son, did you put your pants? He's like, no, Kate, it's my sister. And she's like, no, right? I was like, I think it's you. Did you poop your pants? No, it was uh, Grandpa. <laughs> That's even less like it. Son, did you poop your pants? He's like, no, it's you. And I was like, I think I know it was me. I'm pretty sure. The evidence is there. He blames it on someone else. That's one of the ways we deal with sin. We refuse to accept culpability for it. That it's our fault. And instead, we push it on other people. Another way is we ignore sin. Um, you may know that I'm very, very into 7-Eleven. I really, really, really like 7-Eleven. Um, a lot. Way too much. It's a big problem. I'm working on it. You guys can pray for me. <laughs> Here's what I like. I like those little triangle-shaped pizza boxes. I like that they make a box specifically sin-shaped. I like it. I go, I go in. I get a pizza box. The pizza fits right in. I go there a little bit too much, right? Now, I'm a big fan of 7-Eleven. Uh, my wife is not as big of a fan of 7-Eleven, which is understandable, right? She's like, hey, you've been going to 7-Eleven a lot? And I'm like, no, not too much. <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> I may know the employees all by name, but that's just because I'm a people person, right? <laughs> She's like, well, let's go on a walk. We'll just like walk by your car on the way out and we'll see if you've been going to 7-Eleven a lot. I don't think that's necessary. We don't need to do that, right? But I'm like, you know, I'm pretty confident. I've been going to 7-Eleven a lot. There's not going to be much. We walk to my car. We look in the window. There's like, you know, 18 triangle-shaped boxes. <laughs> I got like big gold stack like I'm going to sell it. I, mean? I like ignore it and I forget how it mounts up and how it's sort of taken over the backseat of my car as I just throw trash back there keep my eyes away from the things that I've done. We do different things with sin. We don't want to like accept it and deal with it. Sin is always two things. The first is this. Sin is an offense against God. You guys have heard of David? King David? Famous guy. Man after God's own heart. But one day he's walking around the palaces. He sees a woman who he wants that doesn't belong to him. And he's the king, so he takes her. Then he sends her husband to the front lines where he dies. And he realizes it's a sin. He's done all kinds of bad things here. And we read his response to his own sin in Psalm 51, verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now we hear David say, against you and you only have I sinned. And we're like, I don't know, David. It seems like you sinned against Bathsheba when you took her. 
or against your husband when you sent him out to die, or against the people when you dishonored the name of God, or the priestly system, or all the people you're supposed to represent. It seems like you did bad to a lot of people. And there's a truth there. But first and, foremost, first and foremost, here's what happened. David is in the image of somebody. He is a representative of somebody. He looks like somebody. That is God. But he didn't act like that person. He misrepresented who God was. He brought dishonor to God's name. He violated God's created order. And the results of that are the harm that he does to other people. And that's the second thing sin always is. Sin is always social. Whenever I sin, I'm harming other people. Whatever sins we've convinced ourselves are only harming us, it's just a lie. Sin always harms other people. It always does damage to other people. All the exploitation and manipulation and abuse that happens in our world is a result of people sinning, thinking that they're really not hurting anyone. Now, sometimes eventually they realize they are hurting people and they continue to do it. But sin is social. It's always these two things. Why won't our brain accept this? Why won't our hearts accept this? We want to believe that human beings are basically good. We can't get our brains around these truths about sin. And I think it has to do with the way that we view everyone. Heroes and villains. Everyone's a hero or a villain. In your own story, usually you're the hero and someone else is the villain. I can say people's names that are famous. And you'll all be able to tell me, hero or villain, right? Let's try it. Adolf Hitler. Well, that was not quite strong enough. That was like a softball. Let me tell you, Adolf Hitler. Good. Turn around, make sure it was that. Okay. Martin Luther King Jr. Hero. Charles Manson. C.S. Lewis. Hero. Osama bin Laden. Zach Nazarian. Hero. Wrong. Wrong. Every single human being that has ever lived, that's here today, is a villain. Every single one. Stop playing the hero game. Stop playing it. I am not a hero. You are not a hero. Every person that you've ever idolized or thought was good was not good. There's only one moral hero in the history of the universe. It's Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of Christianity. Not that there are good people and bad people, but only that there are bad people and one good human being paid the price for all of them. Paul is already like, let's slip what he's trying to say here. He said, for all of sin, there's no distinction. The ground is level. Everyone is the same sinner before the cross, but because there's no distinction in the fact that everyone is a sinner, there's no distinction in the fact that everyone may be saved. Regardless of what you've done, Regardless of what you're doing, in repentance, you can find Jesus' grace and faith. That's what Paul moves into the next thing that he wants to say. Through the cross, redemption is available to all who believe. This is where the good news comes. Good news. We can read this beginning in verse 23. Read the one that's hard. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is where Paul begins to talk about what it is that happened at the cross. And we read it and we're like, I wasn't super clear, Paul. I don't know all those words. He draws upon two linguistic or two cultural worlds. The first one is the word he uses for redemption. It's a word that's associated with ransom. Now, 
Today, if you're a businessman and you make a bad decision, you lose a lot of money, and you lose other people's money, there are bankruptcy laws that are designed to protect you. Back then, if I'm a businessman, I'm with you, if I'm a businessman, and I make a bad decision, and I lose a lot of my money, and I lose a lot of other people's money, I have to pay that back. And if I can't pay that back, my only option is to sell myself into slavery to pay that debt. That's the situation I can end up in. I can do something wrong and be completely indebted, so indebted that I don't belong to myself anymore. But then, my brother, or my friend, who lives 20 miles down the road, hears of my condition, hears that I'm sold into slavery, hears that I cannot pay my debt, and he's like, oh yeah, I can pay that. So he goes to my village, he finds the pagan temple, he pays the price of my freedom, and I'm transferred from slave to a human being, and I become the slave of whatever god the ransom was paid to. That's the first word he uses. So the Gentiles who are there, they hear this word for ransom, and they go, oh, okay, okay. So you're saying that a debt was paid. There was a debt I owed, and the debt was paid. I understand that world. I understand the analogy. I understand what it means to be completely indebted and someone else to come along and pay that debt for me. That's the first thing that's happening. Something that we couldn't pay for gets paid. How? That's what Paul uses his other world, his other word. It's the word propitiation. And more than half of you are like, when you're reading that, you're like, just skipping that word. <laughs> Don't know what that word means. And you probably have different words in your Bible, so just let's do a survey real quickly. How many of you in this verse in your Bible have atoning sacrifice? How many of you? Raise your hand if you got that. Anybody? Uh, more than one of you, I think, probably has it. Okay, okay. How many of you have the word expiation? Good, good. I'm glad. How about propitiation? Okay. The best word is propitiation. That's the best word to describe or to translate the Greek word hysteria. And this word in the Old Testament and elsewhere in the New Testament is a reference to something called the mercy seat. So Paul says Jesus was put forth, was brought out as a propitiation. And Jewish Christians were there, they hear this word, and they immediately think of the mercy seat. You know the temple. And in the temple, there's this room called the Holy of Holies. And in this really special holy place, there's the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of this Ark of the Covenant is a golden slab. One day a year, the high priest, the only person who could do this, would take the blood of a bull and a goat that had been slain and walk into the temple into the Holy of Holies of the Ark of the Covenant. And he would sprinkle blood, sprinkle blood on this golden slab. And what's happening there is the signification of the wrath of God because of the sins of the people being directed away from them and toward the bull and the goat that had been slain. It's a rerouting of God's righteous judgment. It's a rerouting of God's righteous wrath to something else. But it was way in the Holy of Holies. It was inside a temple that people couldn't go inside. It was inside a room that only one guy could go inside. It was inside a room you could only go in once a year. And Paul says, Jesus was brought out out of the veil, out of the holy holies, out of the temple. And he served as a propitiation, a substitute, someone who was slain in the place of those who deserve to be slain. He's saying, the righteous judgment of God that was meant to be poured out on those who looked like God and did not act like God was instead poured out on Jesus. 
That's how the debt is paid. Two powerful words to describe what happens at the cross. Debt paid by someone who took judgment for you. Paul is saying, the judgment we deserve was poured out on Jesus so that grace might be poured out on us. That's what's at the heart of the gospel. Good works don't save us. It is God's work that saves us. How do we receive it? How do we get that thing? What happens? Such that we can have that salvation. Paul says, it's in faith, it's in trust. I don't think I can say it better than this guy named John Stott, who's a New Testament scholar. When he describes faith, he says, the value of faith is not to be found in itself, but entirely and exclusively in its object. Namely, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To say justification by faith alone is another way of saying justification by Christ alone. Faith is the eye that looks to Him, the hand that receives His free gift, the mouth that drinks His living water. Then Paul moves on to the final thing he wants to convey. On the cross, God's just wrath and His generous love are reconciled. We can read this beginning at the end of verse 25. This, talking about all the things he just described, was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul begins to defend something, to answer a question that would have been in the minds of those who are hearing what he has to say. A question that we don't really naturally have today. If most, as most of us do, we conceive of the universe as the whole universe, and in the center, and that's where we are, the center. The primary problem we have, the question that we're always struggling with is, why do bad things happen to me? That's the main question that we have if the universe that we believe is the real universe is the one where we're in the center. But that's not the universe the Bible teaches. It's not the universe that many people believe back when Paul is writing. The correct universe is this one. Yet the entire universe at the center is God himself, the one who created and sustains and if that's the case, the biggest question, the question that troubles the minds of those who are hearing Paul, the thing that they're wondering about, is this. What does God do with those who have dishonored his name, who have done bad things to him? And you hear that, and you're like, uh, that is not a question I would have had. It has to do with certainty. It has to do with assurance. I'm going to explain why it matters. How do you guys like things to be certain? Anybody? When we're young, we're like, oh, grown-ups. Grown-ups are certain, right? And then you grow up and you're like, oh, no, I'm not certain, right? I'm just an older, more beaten-up version of my younger self. That's all I am. Like, I walk around all day like, I'm a grown-up, I'm an adult, I know how to do things. I, I, I'm not certain. Grown-ups aren't certain. How about math? Math pretty certain? You're like, yes, math is certain. You find math, like, that's a sure thing. One plus one is always two. That's as complex as we're going to go there. Just believe that. <laughs> so I'm convinced math is super certain. I'm growing up in the world of math. I think I'm going to be an engineer. That would have been a terrible job for me. And then I get to this thing called an imaginary number. And I'm like, math failed me. Drop the books, walk out. Math isn't certain. they got to make up numbers. 
Like imaginary? No, how about real numbers? <sighs> Man, okay, so that one didn't work. When I was dating my wife, she was really into like rocks. <laughs> and then also rocks in outer space. Like planets and moons and stars and stuff, right? And I want her to marry me, so I pretend to be into stars and planets. <laughs> Don't laugh, you see this ring? It worked. It worked. Come on. Okay, so listen. I learned a little bit about astronomy, and I'm like, oh my gosh, heavenly bodies. They are certain. We just had an eclipse. You guys remember the eclipse? Oh, yeah. And people are like, oh no, I didn't have time. I didn't buy my eclipse glasses. And I'm like, you had like 180 years. We knew this thing was going to happen. Once we figured out how heavenly bodies move, we predicted all of it. And every time it does what it's like we think it's going to do. It's certain. It's sure. You can go online. And you can get a list of future astronomical events. You can do that. So I did. I thought things should be certain. I want to know what's going to happen. In 2,123, if the Lord doesn't return, on June 9th, there's going to be a long-duration lunar eclipse of approximately 106 minutes. Get your glasses down. You've got time. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I can guarantee you it's going to happen. 2,134, Halley's Comet will return to the inner solar system. It's not going to surprise us. It's not going to surprise us. It's going to happen. 2,174, the, full, the second full orbit of Neptune around the sun since its discovery in 1846, we know it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. As long as the Lord doesn't return, it's going to happen. It's not going to surprise us. And then I keep reading. In the year 3000, due to the precession of the equinoxes, Gamma Cephei becomes the North Star. We're going to lose the North Star. The GPS of human beings for thousands of years is going to change. Heavenly bodies are failing me. They're not certain. That's the problem that these people who are hearing Paul are having. They want to know that the God that they're told to believe in, the one who they put their faith in as the God who he says he is, that he actually isn't weak but defends his own character, that he isn't capricious, that he defends his own name. Those same pagans who now worship the God of Israel formally worship pagan gods who were capricious. And capricious means you're always changing your mind, you're doing whatever you want, your moods change. All children and most adults are capricious. These pagan gods, they make sacrifices to, or these pagans, they make sacrifices to these pagan gods. They put their chickens or their goats, they take them to the altar, they kill the thing, they do it the way they're supposed to do it. Like, please, pagan gods, do the thing that you said you're going to do. But they couldn't be sure that this God would do the thing he said he was going to do, or that he wouldn't do the thing that he said he wasn't going to do. They had to hope that the God wouldn't be capricious. So, like, can we be certain that this God is going to do the thing he says he's going to do? There's this problem of past sins. There's this problem of past sins. These people, including us, who have dishonored the name of God, yet they go unpunished. The final punishment has not been exacted onto them. So this God doesn't even defend his own name. How can we guarantee that the thing he's promising us, he's going to come through on? Paul's like, don't worry, don't worry. You can believe that your God is certain. You can believe that your God will do the things he says he's going to do. You can believe that your salvation is secure. Do you know why? Because he doesn't make you do sacrifices. He takes up both sides of the sacrificial transaction. God builds the altar. God climbs up onto the altar. God spills his blood on the altar. And he accepts his own offering. Jesus. 
God Himself gives Himself to appease Himself. God the Judge. God the Sacrifice. God the Justifier. Good works don't save us. God's work saves us. Amen? Amen. It's not bad for support there, right? Pray with me before we do communion. Father, we thank you for the secure salvation we have in your work, in the work of your Son. I pray for the hearts of those who are here today, who are hearing the gospel message for the first time, or are realizing that this is the gospel message for the first time. Pray that you continue to work in their hearts right now. If everyone can keep their heads bowed for a moment, I want to offer an opportunity. <clears throat> there are some of you who heard the gospel for the first time and you want to respond, maybe. There's probably more of you who have always thought the gospel was something else, and you're realizing now that it's God's work that saves you and not your work. That you can't be sufficient, but God can be sufficient. That your faith must be in Jesus' action on the cross. If that's you. If you want this secure hope, while everyone else's head is bowed, just show me by raising your hand. And we'll pray together. I see that hand right there. See that hand? That's you. Don't be afraid. One more second. Pray this prayer. Father, I know that I am a sinner. That I have sinned. I repent from my sin. I turn away from my sin. I turn towards the salvation and the grace offered in the sacrifice of Jesus. I put my faith in Him and His work. I thank you for everything you've blessed me with. I pray that you continue to transform me by the power of God. Feel free all these things. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As the music plays, please come forward to receive the elements. <laughs>